Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Last time on HI101, we talked about two conspiracy theories in their historical context, whether or not Hitler managed to survive the Second World War, and how heavily the Freemasons were involved in the founding of the United States. Perhaps unsurprisingly, none of the evidence we came up with was terribly alarming. Today, we'll be looking at two more, and at least one of them is going to have more substance than most people realize. So, let's begin. Here on HI101 with Rebecca Blesky. Hi. I always say Rebecca when I'm introducing I you. I know. I never actually call you Rebecca in real life. I think you've called me Rebecca like once ever. Was I mad at you? I, I think it just kind of came out and we were both like, <gasps> what was that? And then just kind of moved on and never talked about it again. Yeah. I don't know. I, I guess it's because I'm like introducing you to people. It's fine. It's like my official name. It's what a bunch of my teachers call me too. It's so what goes like, on how appropriate. and stuff. Yeah. 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 I, uh... It's what my teachers and grandma call me. <laughs> <laughs> I'll probably add you to the notes as Rebecca again. I remember that was a sticking point last time, but no. That's fine. We'll, we'll all learn to live with it. <laughs> I'm not going to not answer to it. That's true. There are other things I suppose I could put in that would be worse. Yeah. You did know, though, correct, that visitors from other plants have been coming to Earth for thousands of years and basically been responsible for every single advance that we've ever made technologically or socially, right? Of course. Of course. Of course That's, I knew that. I mean, how, how could we possibly learn to stand giant stones on their end ourselves? <laughs> ancient Do you aliens, think that humans could have built the pyramids? Ancient aliens is just like, it's got so little faith in humanity. It's just, it's, it's remarkable. I know. Look at how flat this was cut. People can't cut flat things. <laughs> this is before the Masons with their with their squares, right the ninety angles. degree angles. <laughs> <laughs> but no, what 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 definitely is not disputed is that something something big happened in June nineteen forty seven in Roswell, New Mexico. Do you mean July? July eighth. 1947? Ah, see, that's where you're mistaken, because the crash itself actually happened sometime in June. July 8th was just when the government showed up to take away the wreckage. Ah. Mm. Yep, mm, got you on a technicality. <laughs> a conspiracy theorist's favorite pastime. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> sometime in June, we don't know exactly when, a rancher called William Brazell 
Brazel, Brazel? I, I forgot to look up the pronunciation. He's not important. He's not important. It's not the, this is not the important detail about what's happening here. He found a whole bunch of metal, uh, metal and rubber debris scattered across a ranch about 30 miles outside of town. And um, didn't really think a whole lot of it, actually. And he just kind of went home. Sure. Just, he was just going about his day and he was like, oh, that's weird. And look at that garbage. Look at that garbage. Guess I'll go home, have dinner. <laughs> Pretty much. But then he kind of heard other townspeople talking about seeing these floating discs in the sky. And he was kind of like, huh, that's, that's, that's kind of weird, too. And he went home and he had Guess some I'll more dinner. Guess I'll go home and have some dinner. <laughs> and literally, at dinner, his wife was like, well, maybe you should go and... That stuff that you saw the other day, maybe you should go and pick it up and, and collect it and see what's going on there. And he's like, oh, maybe, maybe I will, I guess. And he and his son went and they collected as much of the debris as they could loaded it onto a trailer brought it back to his barn uh put it under a tarp there and uh he just kind of left it there for a little while until either the sixth or the seventh he he mentioned to the sheriff like hey i got i found this i found this stuff out in a field and i think it might have something to do with those flying discs you want to see this garbage i found last month <laughs> if there's anything about the roswell story that makes me think like oh come on no way that this is an alien. It's that this guy sat on this thing for either two or three weeks, and no one's exactly sure how long he sat on it. That's how inconsequential he thought it was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this uh, this this debris was made up of some ty- some kind of metallic foil, as I mentioned, uh, long strips of rubber. There was some uh, wood, kind of sticks bundled together. There's paper, apparently a lot of scotch tape some tape with little flowers on it just a whole pile of stuff and he figured it weighed uh maybe five pounds altogether like really really light and he was kind of like oh it's it's amazing it's really light (laughs) this guy seems like he must be the most boring man in the universe he's like he sounds like a typical farmer just like so laid back doesn't really care just kind of going about his day till he can mosey on home and have some dinner yeah it's it's all about that trench pie or whatever it is that they're eating at the end of the day yeah there's three thousand calories in one sitting you yeah. can work it real hard yeah get him some potatoes potatoes some, and gravy and more gravy yep the uh the sheriff reported it to the local air base because he figured well if anybody's got something weird going on it's probably roswell army airfield so they're doing all sorts of weird stuff up there nobody seems to know quite what war is only over for two years at this point there's still a lot of military activity going on yeah so he, he sent off a message to the, to the airbase, and the next day, on, on the 8th, a Major Jesse Marcel and uh, uh, an unidentified man in plain clothes showed up, um, interviewed William Brazell. It's a man in black, probably. 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 Accompanied Brazell back to the crash site, had him show exactly where it was that he found it, collected all of the material that they could that was left there, confiscated all of the material from the barn and uh and left later that day public information officer uh walter holt issued a press release claiming that they had recovered a flying disc that's right you heard it straight from the army mm-hmm. later that day they had a, a press conference and this time this, there was a second statement saying that it was actually just a crash weather balloon and they actually displayed the wreckage and, and kind of laid it out to show, like, yeah, this is a weather balloon. Yeah. Yeah, good try, government. <laughs> Can't pull the wool over our eyes. Wake up, sheeple. 
which was obviously a lie. Just complete fabrication. Of course. And that was basically the end of the story. Everyone in Roswell stopped talking about it. They went, oh, okay, it's the weather balloon, and went back to their boring, kind of farmerly lives. <laughs> At this point, President Truman hears about what's going on. And he immediately uh, forms a group called the Majestic 12, who are a task force that are charged with uh, investigating and covering up and analyzing alien wreckage and any future alien activity on the planet because they believe that it would send all Americans and by extension, all human beings into a massive panic uh, if they discovered that there was life outside of Earth. Mm -hmm. The Majestic 12 take the debris which, by the way, Major Jesse Marcel, who collected the debris, later came forward saying uh, was not of terrestrial origin. So there you go. Aliens. They took this debris away. And later on, residents would even come forward saying that they had seen uh, alien bodies removed from the crash sites. So it's definitely a big thing. Mm -hmm. The government was covering up the, the bodies covering up the aircraft whatever was shown was not the real wreckage all of this stuff and it was likely taken away we've later been able to deduce to area 51 a detachment of the uh, edwards air force base in nevada mm -hmm. now area 51 is very secretive there is a massive perimeter mm -hmm. uh, it's in the middle of the desert you're not allowed to cross the link, uh, the the very very tall fence with cameras all over it, razor wire. There are patrols on foot as well as helicopter patrols, just heavily locked down. Which you would really only do for one reason: aliens. Correct. You know, why else would you have a secure air force base? I I, I literally can't think of a reason. Um, it's me. I mean, it's it's a. It's a big area. It's it's uh, nearly 40 kilometers square, yeah. which is just massive. After the Roswell incident, you know, starting in the in the early 50s, uh, sightings of UFOs went up dramatically. So, I mean, the government was trying to keep it under wraps, but the people saw what they saw. Yeah. And it got so extensive that there was a task force called Project Blue Book that was opened in 1952 by the U.S. Air Force that was tasked with investigating every single UFO claim. Uh, obviously an extension of Magnuson 12. Yeah. But it was terminated abruptly in 1969 when they basically said, none of these are aliens. This task force is over. We're going to stop investigating this, even though people were still calling in with UFO reports. Is it because they found too much? Probably. Uh, pr pro pro probably. That's, that's, that's the answer. I mean, the more that they find the more secrets they have to hold. And that's real hard for some people. <laughs> it's very hard for some people. Multiple witnesses came forward saying that they had worked at the base and seen alien aircraft, seen people testing alien aircraft, seen workers uh, stripping down these alien aircraft and reverse engineering the technology or the weapons found inside. Mm -hmm. People came forward saying that time travel was being tested on this base, which was being made possible by, by this alien technology. One man, and this is, trust me, my favorite fact of the entire, <laughs> of all of these conspiracy theories that we're talking about. A man named Dan Burrish came forward and claimed that he, in 1989, had been working on a cloning project with an alien partner who he was able to communicate with 
via a telepathic uh, interpreter. And that alien's name, are you ready for this? Yes. Was (laughs) J-Rod. I know this is dead air, but I just really want everyone to think about the fact that someone made up an alien named (laughs) J-Rod. Is that like the letter J? Yeah, okay. Capital J dash capital R-O-D. Perfect. J-Rod. J-Rod. I mean, I feel like generally when you're going to like make up an alien name, it's going to be like Zebulon or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, no, no, no. J-Rod. That's a fake that's a fake alien name. Real aliens are named things <laughs> like J-Rod. <laughs> what what happened at Roswell? What happened with this UFO craze? What happened at Area 51? What is going on here? Who is J-Rod? <laughs> we want answers. The people demand answers to the point that uh, even within the last few years there have been uh, shoot, I forgot to write down his name, but there was a candidate for the Democratic nomination in 2007. So lost to Barack Obama, yeah. who during one of his interviews uh, claimed that it was just not right that the government was lying to everybody about what was found at Roswell. Oh, yeah. Did he not claim that if he became president, he would release all the alien information or yeah. whatever? Yeah, I yeah. remember that. actually. I'll, I'll look up the name and I'll put it in there. But yeah, this is a thing that happened very recently. So, yeah. There was also a, a Canadian MP who went on the record about contact with alien life that I I hope he's I hope he's okay. Yeah. <laughs> he seemed to be having a rough time there for a while. Yeah. But in terms of the actual Ro- Roswell incident itself, it makes sense that there was some confusion because it wasn't just a weather balloon. The debris that was recovered was Uh, attached to a weather balloon. It was part of something known as Project Mogul. This is a project that was going on between 1947 and 1949, in which the Air Force was building these um, hypersensitive microphones that were attached to uh, radar collection dishes and sending them up with weather balloons. The intent was to try and monitor Soviet testing of nuclear weapons. They were hoping to pick up traces of any nuclear weapons being detonated through the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And so what this would look like is this black rubber weather balloon, which is quite, quite large. Yeah. And attached to it at the bottom is this um, hexagon shaped dish made out of foil to make it as, as light as possible and balsa wood for the frame. Yeah. And uh, it would have a microphone attached at the very center of it. And so you'd have like this dark balloon going up carrying this shiny foil disc attached to it. Yeah. And it's 1947. Yeah. And when this balloon went down, I mean, they, they found throughout the project that the, the rubber balloons weren't working properly. They, they developed new balloon technology out of it, which was one of the greatest advancements that came out of Project Mogul. <laughs> <laughs> um, but when this balloon failed and, and, and fell in this field... The government didn't want people to know about Project Mogul for two reasons. Number one, the Soviet Union didn't develop a nuclear bomb until 1949. And so they didn't want to panic people because of the fact that they were listening for nuclear bombs. Yeah. Because they didn't really want to worry anybody until a bomb had actually been produced. Until it was a real threat. Makes 
Makes some sense. Yeah. And they also wanted to avoid any Soviet spies finding out about the fact that they were trying to discover what the Soviets were up to. Yeah. Now, when we look at back at the whole Soviet nuclear program now, that's kind of laughable, given that basically the entire Soviet nuclear program was built from scraps of information stolen from the American nuclear program going all the way back to the, Man- to the Manhattan Project. Yeah. But be that as it may, what, cl- uh, what fell in Roswell was one of these giant foil dishes attached to a a popped weather balloon so the debris that was found was extremely light because it was built of balsa wood and and foil and and the the long strips of rubber were from the balloon itself and it all makes sense and what the uh what the what, what was displayed at the press release was the weather balloon without the disc yeah basically to throw people off of Project Mogul, but also show them, like, no, this is just a balloon. Like, everybody calm down, please. Yeah, nothing to be afraid of. Holt did kind of whiff it when he told everyone that they had recovered a flying disc. Yeah. He maybe shouldn't have said that. Not because of the aliens angle, but because he should have known better than to tell the public about Project Mogul. Yeah. But... As far as most people were concerned, the issue was closed once they were like, yep, it's a weather balloon. Here it is. Yeah. Nobody in Roswell cared about it after that. Yeah. People talked about it from time to time. Went home and had their dinner. Just a weather balloon. (laughs) Yeah. People talked about it once in a while because it was like, hey, this is the wildest thing that happened in 1947, probably. But it, for the most part, stopped being that big of a deal. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, over at Area 51, completely separately from anything that's going on in Roswell, Area 51 was designed to test new experimental aircraft. Yeah. If you're going to fly a new airplane that you know no one knows how well it's going to work, do it in the middle of the desert so that when it crashes... It's not going to uh, hurt anybody. It's not going to hurt anybody but the pilot. And hopefully he makes it out in time, but you know. It's, yeah. He knows what he signed up for. It's test pilots for you. Yeah. And also because it's real easy to find and recover the wreckage. Yeah. Uh, without any outside meddling. Yeah. Which... If you want examples of how that can be a problem, see Roswell in 1947. Yeah. <laughs> it makes perfect sense to put it out in the middle of the nowhere. And also, you put up a giant perimeter because you don't want people seeing the experimental aircrafts that you're working on. Yeah. They're secret. The thing that really changed, though, at Area 51 was the altitudes that these planes were starting to fly at. In the early 50s, civilian aircraft were capped at 20,000 feet. Military aircraft were capped at 40,000. But the planes that they're working on in Area 51 at this point in time are extremely high altitude spy planes because this is pre satellites and especially pre spy satellites. Yeah. And the way that you got aerial reconnaissance was you fly a plane really fast and really high above the place and you have a guy take a picture. Yeah. It's. It almost seems a little bit laughable now, but that's that's how it works. That's where they were at, yeah. Well, and, and I mean, in some cases, that's still where we're at. Like, yeah, for the most part, spy satellites have, have replaced that, that necessity. But there are still times where aerial reconnaissance is more effective. Yeah. The planes that they're developing at Area 51 are the, uh, the U-2. I don't know if you've ever heard about that one. There was the famous incident where a U-2, which... Uh, the United States claimed didn't exist, crashed in the Soviet Union and a bit of, a, bit of an incident. Yep. There was also a, a plane called the A-12, um, the A-12 ox cart, 
um, the the ox cart was just a randomly assigned secret project name. Yeah. The A12 ox cart was a beautiful airplane. I'm not normally like a massive airplane guy, but oh my goodness. Do you know what the SR-71 Blackbird looks like? Um, you might recognize pictures of it if you saw it. Okay. Um, the A-12 was the immediate precursor to the SR-71. Okay. And it's this really long, narrow plane. And it's barely got any wings. But they're just these little stubby wings right at the back. Mm-hmm. So it it almost looks like a, a, a rocket ship from the top. And then it's got okay. these two massive, massive jet engines attached to the to the wings. And it looks very futuristic. Like, it... it it looks like something from Star Wars. Yeah. In fact, there's there's a couple ships in Star Wars that look like they were based off of the A12, to be honest with you. Yeah. The reason that the SR-71 Blackbird was named, or nicknamed the Blackbird, was they painted them this really deep blue-black color. Okay. And that's the origin of that name. The reason that they painted them this deep blue-black color was that when they were testing the A12s in the very early days... Something that fast that flies that high, you can't really make that out of like just any materials. It's got to be made out of titanium. And they were flying unpainted raw titanium hulled A-12s at heights far above 60,000 feet where everything else was restricted to much lower than that. And the thing about visibility of aircraft is that the higher they go, the easier they are to see from the farther away. Yeah. And the thing about making aircraft out of unpainted titanium is they're really shiny. Yeah. And so you've got planes that are flying faster than any other planes that exist at altitudes much higher than any plane flies at and is in a configuration that's completely different from virtually every plane that's in existence that the public knows about. And all of a sudden you have those cigar-shaped craft that everyone's talking about, you know, flying way faster than an actual plane could fly and turning faster than a plane could and all of these things that make perfect sense when you consider the frame of reference that everyone's uh, working with in terms of aircraft. Um, Even reports of the the plane, you know, seeming to be like stuck at one point in the sky and then all of a sudden zipping off to one side or the other. In general, that was an A-12 flying more or less straight at the observer. Yeah. It's just that it's so it high and so far away yeah. that it looks like it's not moving. Mm-hmm. Look up a picture of the A-12. It's amazing. I feel like it's the Blackbird one, like the really, really thin ones, and it has the kind of like angled fin at the back. Uh, some it. variations of the SR-71 did have the fin at the back, yeah. Okay. You might be thinking of an even later one called the F-117. Maybe. Which is also an awesome looking airplane. Everything made it at Area 51 was just, just sweet. Yeah, oh, okay. It, it, you see what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's a it's a cool looking plane. Yeah, it is. When Project Blue Book starts going through and uh, investigating all of these cases, the first thing that they do is they pull the flight records from Area 51 and they cross-reference every single report of... an unidentified flying object cross-reference it with the flight logs of the a12 right and go okay well check 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 that took care of like 90 percent of the ufos that people are talking about yeah thing is you can't really go back to the public and be like oh yeah that ufo you saw yeah that was just an experimental military plane that no one's actually supposed to know exists yeah 
You can't do that. (laughs) They don't say that. And I mean, there are other ones that they investigate and it takes them longer to figure out what's going on. And they are these other weird experiments or uh, other weird phenomenon that you hear people kind of dismissively talking about when it comes to UFOs in terms of like, oh, that was, you know, we're putting that down to uh, ball lightning that occurred in that area at that point in time. Or there was this comet that was going through, or that was the night that a meteor shower was happening. Or uh, sometimes it was weather balloons. Or, you know, you you hear the swamp gas one every once in a while. There's weird stuff that happens that looks weird and people call in about it. Yep. There were some items in Project Blue Book that they weren't able to find a satisfactory explanation for. That being said, the conclusion of the project was basically UFOs pose zero threat to national security, and we're not going to worry about them anymore because mostly what we're doing is checking flight logs of uh, experimental aircraft, and this yeah. is getting... It, it's pretty obvious what's going on here. Yeah, it's kind of a waste of a time to of their time to keep checking into the exact same thing, mm, essentially. Exactly. Yep. And I mean, there are still... It's not as though the Air Force doesn't still check into reports of things like this. It's yeah. just that it's not a, a sitting panel on an ongoing investigation anymore, mm-hmm. it, nor does it need to be, really. And honestly, as we've moved away from aerial surveillance in, in that form, uh, reports of UFOs have gone down in a lot of cases. It's yeah. you know kind of the way it's supposed to. There wasn't a Majestic 12, as, anyone, as far as anyone can determine. It's this kind of urban legend thing. I mean, it goes as far as you can find names of who was supposedly on the Majestic 12 board, but there's nothing there to investigate. It's, it's, it's all been projects that the government's been unwilling to let people know are happening for usually national security reasons. It's not terribly insidious. And as far as Roswell's concerned, renewed interest in the, in the incident doesn't really come around until 1978. So more than 30 years after the actual incident, yeah, they start interviewing people that were around for the incident, just kind of, a, a, kind of as a local interest piece kind of thing. And Marcel, that, that major that picked up the, the materials, he starts telling people, you know, what I picked up, it can't have been from Earth. Like, it, it, was, it was otherworldly. I remember it clear as day. And it's kind of like, dude, it's been 31 years. Yeah. Like, you could have said something by now and yeah. it's the whole like oh well i didn't want to say anything until i was retired i was under orders you know didn't feel safe blah 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 it's worth mentioning that marcel was known to be um shall we say unreliable at best mm-hmm. this is a man who had lied about his military service during the war claiming that he had earned medals which he had not claimed right claimed that he had shot down enemy planes which he had never shot down uh, stuff like that does not generally help your overall trustworthiness. Right. Also, as things kind of started heating up around Roswell again, you know, more people came asking questions of more people. More people are giving their eyewitness accounts of, you know, more than 30 years ago and, and things not matching up. There were a few things that people overall did agree on. And it's it's kind of funny. There was, there was one photograph of Marcel beside some wreckage well there were a number of photographs of marcel beside wreckage and a number of them he was saying the government doctored this this isn't what it looked like they took this photo of me doctored in weather balloon images and it's making me look like a fool like this is this is ridiculous i'm being played but there was one photo where he was like this one that that piece there that was actual alien wreckage i guarantee it and 
the people interviewing him were like, uh, that's that's like the only piece that everybody else agrees is definitely from a weather balloon because it's like this component here and like show him like like specs. Yeah. And he goes, oh, yeah, no, that part was the weather balloon. I'm I, like, it, like he would just keep changing his story every time anyone challenged him in any way. He would change his story to make yeah. himself to make to make it fit the the new narrative mm-hmm. of this as being a, an alien investigation. Yeah. Memories are bad. Yes. Memories are really bad. Eyewitness accounts are not reliable for the most part. 30 year plus eyewitness accounts are basically garbage. Yeah. It becomes collaborative improv at that point in time. Yeah. There were a number of fatal air accidents in the late 40s uh, off of Roswell Army Airfield. It's possible that some of the eyewitness accounts of seeing alien corpses being removed may have been conflated with these deaths. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff to kind of explain away most of the more common uh, claims about what it was that happened at, at Roswell. Yeah. But I mean, overall, accounts were contradictory, contradictory, um, verifiably false in a lot of cases, most likely false memory. I mean, it, you have people claiming to have been in on alien autopsies and claiming that they remember the name of the nurse there. And it's like, I remember every detail. It's like, yeah, that person never existed. Yeah. It's like, oh, well, her name was actually this other thing. Can you let me see the list of names of people who were there? I'll, I'll tell you which one it was kind yeah. of thing, right? Yeah, yeah. And I mean... If Roswell is like the most likely candidate for a a government cover up of an alien crash, man, the UFO community is in a lot of trouble because it's just the standard of of evidence there is just non-existent. Yeah, there is a very credible explanation of what the crash actually was. There's even a credible explanation for why the entire truth didn't come out at the time. Yeah, and there's virtually nothing to indicate that there was any sort of extraterrestrial activity there besides there's the whole overall issue of if aliens are coming to earth why would they come to a ranch 30 miles north of roswell new mexico why would they not land in the middle of tokyo or la yeah try to get some visibility here huh yeah it it, it makes very little sense um unless they're trying to prank us which I'm not going to rule out, but I find incredibly unlikely. Yeah. Oh, and uh, one final piece of information before we put Roswell back up on the shelf is definitely not a real thing. Dan Burrish. Yeah. The man working with J-Rod, the alien. Yeah, yeah. It turns out he was actually working as a security guard in 1989. Like, we know where he was working and it wasn't at Area 51. So it turns out that maybe J-Rod wasn't a real alien that he worked with maybe not or maybe the government's just really good at covering up all that alien cloning technology work who's to say <laughs> j-rod knows j-rod knows <laughs> take a quick break and we come, when we come back we'll uh we'll do our last theory i just wanted to mention before we continue that that last section was actually originally a suggestion from a listener named chris higginson So thank you, Chris, for the suggestion. Uh, If you ever have any ideas for episode topics, um, feel free to reach out to me. Contact at hi101.ca is the email address. Or if you go to hi101.ca, there are plenty of ways to get in touch with me from there. Um, I also just wanted to mention that I've been looking around noticing there are lots of people engaging on lots of different platforms, except one. I would love to see a couple more 
iTunes ratings and reviews up there. There have been very few, and they actually really help with visibility on the podcast. So if you'd like to make sure that more people are getting to hear HI101, uh, one of the best things that you can do is go to iTunes and leave a rating or review there. I would really appreciate it. Thanks so much, and enjoy the rest of the episode. Okay, we're back on HI101. Here with Becca Blesky. Oh, interesting. 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 Mixing it up. <laughs> Getting more personal this time. I feel like I've gotten to know you well enough over the years. Sure, sure. <laughs> um, and did you know, Becca? Mm, yes. That just before the American Civil War, secret society known as the Knights of the Golden Circle was formed with the express goal in mind of annexing Mexico, Central America, parts of South America, and the Caribbean, uh, seceding from the United States and creating a perfect utopia for the people who aren't the slaves in this utopia. Did you know this? Sounds legit to me. It is legit. That's a real thing that actually happened. (laughs) We are going to talk about the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. We're going to talk about a real conspiracy for once. Yes. And what I really want to focus on here is that when we talk about real conspiracies, it tend not to be so slick, necessarily. It is not all wrapped up with a bow. It's 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 pretty messy very in general. Imperfect. People trying to affect change on a massive scale are generally pretty bad at it. A lot of times things come down more to chance than they do to good, solid conspiring. Yeah, precision planning. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not generally a strong suit of, of conspiracy theories that not so much. aren't proven to be true but the plan to kill lincoln i mean everyone knows it john wilkes booth shoots lincoln in the head jumps down yells six semper tyrannus and runs off and it's this big manhunt but he wasn't acting alone it was this whole thing and this group that i just told you about the knights of the golden circle this is a real society that was founded in 1854 in the american south and this is in a climate of the, the, the 10 years before the American Civil War starts is really just kind of a holding maneuver. It's, I, I, I think most people could see that it was sort of maybe coming. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of tension between free, st- free states and slave states. And it had been delayed in 1850 with the, there was this act that was created that basically everything south of the Mason-Dixon line, there was a new state could be made a slave state and everything created north of the Mason-Dixon line was a free state, but there's all these concessions and weird maneuvering and appeasing both sides that it was never really going to hold for all that long. The goal, uh, the Knights of the Golden Circle looked at this and went, okay, well, this is only going to last so long, so here's what we're going to do. We are going to try and start up another war with Mexico, because we haven't had enough of those yet. We're going to move it on down through to Uh, through Central America to South America. We're going to take over all of the Caribbean nations and we're going to create this this new nation where all of the slave states are going to secede from the United States. They're going to join with these newly annexed provinces or territories. And we are going, there's going to be so many of us and it is going to be so enshrined in our government that slavery is okay. And we are going to be so powerful militarily that even if the North wanted to stop us, they wouldn't be able to. Because one of the things that people don't talk about that much when it comes to the Civil War is that 
it wasn't that close. There were a lot more people in the north. There was a lot more money in the north. There were a lot more resources in the north. The south was relatively poor in all of the things that you need to fight a war. Yeah. And yes, they held out for a long time. A lot of that was due to the fact that it's a civil war and you don't necessarily want to go through and completely ruin the place the way that you might in a a more traditional war between uh, two different countries. The goals were very different here. But in the years leading up to the Civil War, the Knights of the Golden Circle really penetrated through a lot of society. They had a lot of members, like thousands and thousands and thousands of members. And it became, like it, was, it was closer to a political party than anything, but it was sort of working within the, the existing political party where they're putting pressure on representatives to make political motions towards their goals. Sam Houston, for example, put forward a motion to attempt to annex uh, Mexico uh, into, uh, into Texas. And he wasn't himself a, a Knight of the Golden Circle, as far as I could tell, but the, press, the pressure from his constituents was definitely coming from members of this organization, mm-hmm. right? Like, that's a very Knights of the Golden Circle aim. Yeah. But at the outbreak of the war, their focus really shifted to defense of the Confederate States of America, um, mostly because if the CSA loses the war their whole plan falls through. You can't have a circle without the top of the circle, which is yeah. all the Southern states. Yeah. Knights of the Golden Horseshoe. Just, eh. <laughs> Doesn't sound as nice. That was good. They were heavily represented in the Confederate army. A lot of the people who volunteered in the very early stages of the war were con- considered themselves knights. And there were units where like as many as like a third of the people in it were uh, members of the society it's not as though people didn't know about the knights in fact they were they were quite well aware that they existed but it's this sort of underground wink wink nudge nudge sort of thing where it's not super overtly um acknowledged who's a member and who isn't mm-hmm. and that leads to a lot of paranoia about northern penetration because there are people in the north who didn't want to go to war That's, you know, I mean, there's people on both sides that didn't necessarily want to go to war. But at this point in time, the Democratic Party is actually closer aligned to the values and representation of what the modern day Republican Party uh, would be. Um, The Democrats at this point tended to favor white, rich Southerners. Um, And so the, the, the Democratic Party in the North opposed the war. They believed that the best thing to do when the Confederacy seceded from the Union was to make peace, draw up terms, and allow them to live on their own terms. Just like, okay, well, I guess we're two countries now. They were known colloquially as copperheads uh, because they were as dangerous as the snake uh, copperhead. It's fine, I guess. It sounds like... I like it because it's this old-timey-sounding insult yeah get out of here you copperhead yeah you know it's it's pretty good but accusations of copperheads being members of the knights was rampant anyone who even remotely seemed to oppose war was branded a knight of the golden circle uh it got so bad that former president franklin pierce had to publicly declare that he was not a member of the knights of the golden circle just because he was a democrat and 
publicly opposed war. He right. was he was a Democrat. That's that, that was the party line. Right. So he still had to go on record as not being a Knight of the Golden Circle. Hmm. And it's really wild when you think about it because the stated goals of the Knights is, are really extreme. You're talking about a massive amount of conquest and then a complete structural reordering. It's like it's it's severe stuff. Yeah. So there's a big jump from ah, I'm not, you know, I'm not feeling this war. I feel like maybe we should make peace with fellow Americans to I think that we should annex uh, the entire Mexico, uh, the entire Gulf of Mexico. Yeah. And turn it into this weird slave state thing. But, you know, the, the war is a tense time. It brings out a lot of like really, you know, it's, it's really stressful for for a country. And some of the stuff that had to be put into place added to that stress. I mean, Lincoln made some moves that were necessary for the war, but were incredibly unpopular. Yeah. Um, he instituted the draft in 1863, which that really upsets anyone who is already opposed to the war because now he's saying, well, even if you don't like it, I'm going to make you fight even if you didn't volunteer. He suspends habeas corpus, which basically means that there's martial law put in place. People can be arrested without necessarily being charged for a crime. Yeah. Kind of a fundamental part of law in the Western world. Just a little bit. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And I mean, it's certainly not the only time that that's happened. It's certainly not the only place that that's happened. I mean, uh, it's happened a number of times in in Canadian history as well, even uh, outside of uh, wartime at one point. It's not good, but again, it's it's sometimes a measure that is taken to to ensure safety. And it's always going to be controversial when it happens. But anyone who is opposed to the war going to be real mad. Enter John Wilkes Booth. John Wilkes Booth was born in Maryland, which was a, which was a slave state, and he thought that slavery made a whole lot of sense. He was inducted into the Knights in 1860 and seemed to think that this whole idea of seceding and creating this new slave nation made a lot of sense to him. He, he thought that that would really work for him, and he hated, hated Lincoln. Yeah. He definitely had some racist issues that he needed to work out there's a lot of stuff that's been attributed to him having said that just gonna go ahead and not repeat them yeah yeah pretty pretty nasty i mean hate to say it typical for for the south in the 1860s but he he believed them wholeheartedly yeah the other thing to know about john wilkes booth was that he was a very very famous actor and he was very very handsome He's like very good looking. All right. No, no, no. He's he's pretty good looking. Okay. Everybody knew this guy. Like he's very he's very well known. And I see you reaching for your phone to look up a picture of John Wilkes Booth. I will go ahead and drop a picture in. Very casually. <laughs> for our listeners so that they know how handsome this man was. And Lincoln was actually a big fan of him. At one point he invited John Wilkes Booth to meet with him at the White House after enjoying one of his plays. And Booth made up some excuse to not go and, uh, yeah, said some really nasty things about Lincoln in the process. Again, don't feel like quoting them, but very, very well known. So Booth continued acting both in the North and the South uh, throughout the war. He hated being in the North, but it seems that he was actually potentially doing some espionage work for the South while acting up in the North. He told his sister at one point that he had used his contacts 
in the acting world to help him him personally smuggle quinine into New Orleans because the North had blockaded the ports in Louisiana and quinine is an essential drug for the treatment of malaria. Yeah. Um, so he was helping smuggle medicine to the Confederate army. Hmm. Whether or not that's just a thing that he said to his sister that didn't actually happen, hard to say. Yeah. But I mean, again, is a member of the Knights, does hate the North, does think slavery is a great idea. I mean, there are more far-fetched things than someone using a, a prolific acting career to commit some espionage. Yeah. He also, at certain points, uh, traveled as far north as Montreal, which, weirdly enough, I did not know this before, had a fairly significant Confederate population or Confederate sympathetic population. Hmm. Yeah. What's up, Montreal? Not so cool in the 1860s, huh? Guess not. (laughs) But then in 1864, last straw is pulled for, for John Wilkes Booth. General Grant suspends the exchange of prisoners between the North and the South. He basically realized that this whole prisoner exchange was feeding soldiers back into the Southern Army, which couldn't really afford to replace any of the soldiers that they had. They were basically working with all of the eligible soldiers that they had. Whereas the North, they could still keep conscripting. And so he decided somewhat cruelly that he was okay with leaving his soldiers in prison if he could keep southern soldiers in prison because he figured it would actually speed up the end of the war yeah it looks like he might have been right on that point that's that's likely true but this just enraged booth further he thought it was a complete violation of of uh, human decency and he comes up with a plan him and a number of his like-minded friends decide that they are going to kidnap Abraham Lincoln. They're going to hold him ransom, and the ransom is going to be start up the prisoner exchange again, because then they can keep the war going. He's also hoping that the kidnap will help to demoralize the North, which, yeah, probably would. Yeah. That makes some sense. And he starts putting a lot of time and effort into planning out this whole kidnapping scheme. He recruits a number of friends to help him out with it. This is a full-on conspiracy. This is a conspiracy to kidnap the president. Yeah which sounds like it's from a National Treasure movie. Weirdly enough, John Wilkes Booth ends up being at the 1864 inauguration when Lincoln was was inaugurated for his second term. He was invited there by his uh, fiance, who uh, was actually a a Lincoln supporter and had no idea that John Wilkes Booth was harboring this secret hatred of him deep within his heart all this time. Wow. And Booth remarked afterwards that... It had been a missed opportunity that if he had wanted to kill Lincoln, that would probably have been the best time to do it. He was right there. And there's actually a photograph out there of the inauguration. And yeah, Booth was like right there. He was very close to Lincoln. Hmm. Probably could have made it work if he had actually been committed to doing so at that point in time. But the plan was still kidnapping. Right. Now, keep in mind that the second term... Uh, of Lincoln's presidency, the main election promise that was made to get him reelected was the 13th Amendment, the abolition of slavery. Yeah. Again, Booth just flew into a rage over this stuff. He hated it. It's it's like weird how much he hated Lincoln. Yeah. Like it was to an irrational extent. 
at this point he reached out to or, or he, he may have already been working with them but at this point he was definitely in contact with some confederate intelligence services at least at a lower level who were condoning the pro- the the kidnapping of the president we're not really sure how far up the line that project necessarily went in the uh in the intelligence community but there were confederate officers telling john wilkes booth that, that kidnapping the president was a great idea yeah which is kind of crazy yeah that's... definitely providing some logistical support things like that giving them the go-ahead on this the other thing that i didn't mention uh, about john wilkes booth is that he had an older brother named edwin Edwin Booth was also an actor, and Edwin Booth was probably even more handsome than John Wilkes Booth, more famous than John Wilkes Booth. Mm. John Wilkes Booth hated this. Yeah, I was going to say, he probably had a complex over that, too. A little bit. Yeah. He had a bit of a Billy Baldwin thing going on there. Yeah. And Edwin was a union supporter. He lived in New York. Mm -hmm. He refused to tour in the South uh, while the war was going on supported Lincoln and like John would get into these big long tirades like yelling at his brother over all of this saying just the worst stuff Edwin being like like you gotta calm down like trying to talk him out of it not really working eventually it got to the point that John had gotten so irrational and and angry over this that Edwin barred him from coming to his home said you're not welcome here anymore yeah which I'm sure also didn't help things john is going, he's going right off the rails at this point yeah thing is he's bringing a lot of other people with him he's not the only conspirator here no on march 17th 1865 they were ready to execute the plan they knew that lincoln was coming to a play at a veterans hospital like it was it was it was uh, uh soldiers who were recovering from their wounds and and uh, a play was being put on for their benefit and lincoln was coming to uh show solidarity he often visited uh, wounded soldiers it was it was quite typical for him right and so they knew that he was going to this hospital and they set up along the road to the hospital and they were ready to just ambush him and take the president into, into custody at the last minute there was a change of plans there was this other function that came up that lincoln decided that he needed to be at worse than this play mm-hmm. and so he decided to go to this function at the ballroom of a hotel and so Booth and his cons- co-conspirators are sitting there at the side of the road waiting for Lincoln, who never shows, because this entire time he's at the hotel that Booth is staying at in the lobby at this function. And by the time Booth gives up and goes back to his hotel, Lincoln has left. He wasn't already, meant to be. He's already so irrational that I can't imagine how freaking angry he is at this point. Yeah. Just tearing out those beautiful curls of his. <laughs> <laughs> Less than a month later, April 12th, 1865, General Robert E. Lee surrenders. And it's effectively the end of the Civil War. Booth somehow gets more angry again, still more. Sure. Yet. And he is staying with a friend at this point, and he's just enraged, and his friend's trying to convince him, like, it's like it's gonna be fine. Like, calm down. Dog, like, yeah. just do your breathing exercises. <laughs> and Booth tells him the only play—I'm no longer going to act. The only play I'll perform from now on is Venice Preserved, which apparently he expected his friend to understand. I've never heard of the play. I, 
friend didn't seem to take on the meaning. Venice Preserved is supposedly a play about an assassination plot. John Wilkes Booth was a very dramatic guy. I'll say. He had, like, in in every sense of the word. (laughs) He was a little much. And he changes his goal to assassination. He's no longer going to bother trying to kidnap him. He doesn't believe that kidnapping Lincoln will solve the fact that the war is basically over. Now, as far as he's concerned, it's not a lost cause because there are still uh, Confederate armies fighting Mm -hmm. because this is 1865 and it takes time for word to travel of things like surrenders. And so he finds out that two nights later, Lincoln is going to be at a play at the Ford Theater. And... He brings together some of his other, some of his buddies, you know, his conspiracy buddies, yeah. at the house of a, a man named John Surratt. And they spend the next couple of days plotting as to how to reverse this terrible turn of events. And they decide that the only way to do it is to basically completely cripple the northern government. And the plan is that Booth is going to kill Lincoln. The president. Another man named George Atzerold is going to go and kill the vice president, Andrew Johnson, who would take over in the event of Lincoln's death. And another man named uh, Lewis Powell is going to kill the secretary of state, a man named William Seward, who would be third in line. And at this point in history, the line of presidential succession isn't really plotted out much further than that. Yeah. That's something that's going to be really kind of nailed down in the in the 40s and 50s with the whole we might get hit with a nuclear bomb type stuff yeah so functionally there's a good chance that the government is going to be in complete disarray if those three men are killed at the same time it's not an unreasonable way of destabilizing the north and his hope is that without that leadership there and with that level of demoralization that the southern army is going to rally come back and be able to despite Lee's surrender still come back and be able to beat the northern forces right it's an interesting plan in that it rides this line between possible and irrational yeah because it's not impossible but it's also really not reasonable to expect this to actually work in the way that they want it to Mm -hmm. but that's not really what's on their mind they go off and from the outset John Wilkes Booth is by far the best positioned to properly carry out the assassination attempt. So we'll do his first. It's it's not as exciting as the other two. Well, I shouldn't say that. It's much better known than the other two and will make less of a story because yeah. of it. Because Booth is an actor, he has free access to the Ford Theater to the point that Occasionally, he would get his mail sent to the Fourth Theater and just would pick it up when he was in the neighborhood. He was very well known there. Yeah. And he managed to get into the theater the morning of the 14th and drill a secret little spy hole in the door of the presidential box mm-hmm. so that he could look in there and make sure that, that, that the president was in there when he was ready to go. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, that, that cracks me up for some reason. I don't know why. I don't know if it's because... I'm imagining a hole big enough to look through and like no one notices or cares. Yeah. Or if it's the fact that he's that worried about the whole thing, that he's that worried about the possibility of like bursting into the booth and be like, oh, oh, sorry, sorry, wrong booth. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Excuse me. Yeah. Excuse me. John Wilkes Booth, by the way. Here's, here's my autograph. Yeah. 
Say that. Say that. It's gonna be it's gonna be worth something. More than you know. Wink. Wink. Yeah. Did you just say wink? Yeah. <laughs> just like imagine some square brackets around it. <laughs> no, he goes in and, and he makes sure that Lincoln is in there and he bursts into the booth and he's carrying a, a single shot pistol and he shoots Lincoln in the back of the head, which will kill him the next morning. There's a number of people. Uh, there's a number of people in the booth with Lincoln. One of them is is a uh, uh, military major, Henry Rathbone, and he immediately tries to tackle Booth, who also has a knife, stabs Rathbone, so he manages to get away from him, jumps out of the presidential booth uh, box onto the stage, interrupting a play, which is terribly rude, but very dramatic, very impactful. Yells out. I, I mean, the, there's there's two accounts. The the more common one is six semper tyrannis, death, uh, or thus always to tyrants, which is supposedly what was said by Brutus as he stabbed Julius Caesar, at least according to the Shakespeare play, which is probably how Booth would know about his his history. Yeah. And I saw a comment that was that basically said like this this combined all the things that Booth hoped for in this moment. It yeah. was big. It was loud. It was uh, dramatic. Everyone's eyes were on him as it happened. Mm. It was it was exactly the kind of thing that an actor like Booth would have wanted out of this situation. Yeah. Which sounds about right to me. Some accounts say that he, the, the spur of his boot, because he was planning to ride out of here as soon as he was done, the spur of his boot caught on a flag as he was as he was jumping and he injured his, uh, his leg that way. But that's a story that he told later. Yeah. All the eyewitness accounts say that he booked it off the stage really quickly. And there's a good chance that maybe what happened is that his horse fell on his leg and injured it. But he didn't think that that's, that, that story sounded as heroic or as dramatic. Yeah. And so that when he was telling people in the next two weeks, he decided on the cooler sounding story. The other thing that some witnesses said that he, that he, that, that Booth said as he, as he ran off was, I have done it. The South is, is avenged. Like, like, oh, we get it. You're an actor. Yeah. Um, no, I, I mean, again, he's 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 doing what he believes is the right thing. He believed that Lincoln overstepped his powers as president and, and really did consider him a tyrant. I would say that the vast majority of people would not agree with him. But in his mind, he was the hero of this piece. And it, yeah. and it really shows. Um, that being said, he wasn't an idiot and he did know to run as fast as possible. Yeah, he wasn't standing there taking bows or anything. Can you imagine, though? I mean, wow. a little bit, I can. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's let's cut over to the other assassinations. Atzerold, who is expected to uh, kill Andrew Johnson, uh, got scared and didn't try. All right. The end. Fair enough, I guess. <laughs> you just didn't... I, I mean, I, I don't mean to make light of this in that I don't want him to have killed anybody. And also, I'm sure that psyching yourself up to assassinate the vice president of the United States is probably no mean feat. Yeah. But he just... He didn't even... Didn't even try. Now, was the vice president supposed to be at the same play or was he in a different place? No, he was in a different place at the time. Okay. As was the secretary of state? Yes. Okay. Yeah. 
So let's skip over to the Secretary of State now. Yes. This is... I feel like this story is especially, like, emblematic of the entire conspiracy. Because what happened here was... uh, Lewis Powell was supposed to kill Seward, but he didn't really know the D.C. area that well. So he brought a friend, okay, David Harold, with him. And Harold was going to be basically the getaway driver. He was going to stay outside the house with the two horses. Yep. Ready for the, the killings to happen. Sure. And be ready when Powell came back out. Not only keeping the horse ready, but also to show him where to go because right. he didn't know the area. Yeah. Wasn't the local. <laughs> Seward was at home. They knew he was at home uh, because about a week before this, Seward had been in a terrible carriage accident. Uh-oh. Like really, really bad. He had gotten uh, a concussion, a broken jaw, a broken arm, uh, serious bruising all over his body. Like he was in bad shape. Yeah. So like, like hold up, like in bed, immobile. Yeah. He like for sure is not going out to party. No. No, not at all. Powell comes to the house. He's, I love this detail. He was carrying a knife and a revolver. Okay, sounds about right. Sure. He was wearing black pants, a long overcoat, a gray vest, a gray dress coat, and a hat with a wide brim. It sounds like it's the equivalent of him showing up in like a trench coat and a fedora and being like, don't mind these dark sunglasses. I'm inconspicuous. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He shows up. He rings the doorbell. And he says to the servant at the door, hello, I'm Mr. Seward's doctor. I've brought some medicine for him. The doctor had been there about an hour before. Yeah. He had left. He had gone home, told everybody, do not disturb him. He needs his rest desperately. And the servant's like, uh, okay, I don't think. And, and Powell pushes past him. Yeah. He gets upstairs and Seward's son comes out and says, who are you exactly? And he goes, I'm the doctor. I'm here to bring your dad some medicine. And his daughter pokes her head out and goes, he's trying to sleep. Like, you guys be quiet. Yeah. Goes back into her room. And his, his uh, uh, Seward's son, Frank, he, he goes, well, just give me the medicine. I'll, I'll get it to him. Like, you're making this racket. Doesn't, like, doesn't trust the guy, right? And Powell goes, okay, here's the medicine, hands him the bottle, pulls out his gun, puts it like on the other side of the bottle and pulls the trigger to try and like shoot him through the bottle. I don't okay. know. I, I guess to hide the gun for as long as possible, I guess. The gun misfires. Like it doesn't fire properly. <laughs> so this guy's like, what's going on? Powell pulls out his knife, um, stabs him as he's going by, non-fatally. Yeah. R- rushes past him into Seward's room where there is Seward, uh, there's uh, uh, an army nurse who's a, a, an army nurse is a is a man. He's he's well trained in combat. He knows yeah. what's going on. Yeah, and like, there's a couple of people in there, right? And Powell's just like rushing past all these people at Seward, who's like laying there in bed, like asleep because he's you know trying to recover. <laughs> yeah, he had his bell rung pretty good. Yeah, and he starts slashing at Seward with this knife manages to cut open his cheek really badly but he's got this like brace on his head because of the jaw which is like it's the 1860s probably like a blacksmith made it or something right it's pretty heavy metal yeah and like even though he slashes at seaward multiple times doesn't manage to land a fatal blow (laughs) that being said the cheek wound bleeds really badly and it's 
relatively close to his neck. So Powell thinks he's been successful. Right. The the uh, army nurse rushes him. Uh, Powell stabs at him too. There's like he stabs someone else on his way out in the back, paralyzing them. Yells, "I'm mad! I'm mad!" as he's running out of the house. <laughs> Which not not okay. sure what's up there. <laughs> He's trying to take the responsibility off of himself. I'm not sure if he's trying to like portray himself as like an escaped psychiatric patient or if he's just like, oh, I'm mad. Like, this is crazy. <laughs> like, is this the 1860s version of YOLO? I'm not sure. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's the whole thing is very, very strange. Yeah. Meanwhile, his, his daughter, uh, Seward's daughter is, is shrieking like, oh my God, he's dead. Yeah. Seward, like, wakes up, spits blood out of his mouth, and goes, I'm not dead. Lock down the house and call the police. (laughs) I'm trying to sleep. (laughs) Powell gets outside and discovers that Harold has completely abandoned him. He rode off. (laughs) Just, like, took too long, or...? I think he just got spooked. That's fair. I, I, I... Powell's time inside the house was not short and was not quiet. Yeah. It's not it was as attracting he was attention, a, probably. Hmm. Yeah, he was. He, this was not a cloak and dagger operation, even though he had both a cloak and a dagger. Sure, yeah. So Powell gets out. The, <laughs> Harold had left him a horse, which was very kind of him. And by all accounts, Powell gets outside, gets on his horse, and doesn't really know where to go and kind of canters off at a relatively slow pace. <laughs> Trying to read all the street signs as he goes past. <laughs> <laughs> um... He eventually gets back to uh, the Surrett house, but it takes him a full three days and no one knows where exactly he was that whole time. Yeah, he didn't even know. <laughs> well, that may be part of the problem. <laughs> After Lincoln is, is shot and killed, over 10,000 federal troops join the manhunt for John Wilkes Booth. 10,000? Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, plus civilian assets like everyone was trying to help like everyone was looking for john wilkes booth it was on um it took them 12 days to find him they eventually found him hiding uh on a farm uh called garrett's farm in virginia and before anyone could really do a whole lot in terms of like capturing him uh he was shot in the back of the head by a sergeant boston corbett from behind just snuck up on him it's kind of weird because like he had some time to like say a couple last words and in in typically dramatic fashion he asked uh he asked someone to help him hold his hands up in front of his face so he could look at them yeah and his last words were useless useless (laughs) (laughs) and then he died (laughs) it's just like i i'm not sure what he was trying to say exactly but i feel like he thought that it was very good right but everybody's just like, why is this dude so extra? <laughs> <laughs> when Powell got back to the Surrett house, detectives were already waiting there. They had already found out about the Surrett connection. Yeah. So they got him pretty easy. Yeah. <laughs> Probably should have figured out a different safe house. Probably. Um, Atzerill didn't go back to the safe house. Uh, he went to his cousin's farm. So took took them nearly a week to find him. All right. It's just a bad idea. 
I mean, the guy was German. He's a German immigrant. He only has so much family in the in the area. Yeah. If you're on a manhunt for somebody and you know he has like a cousin. Yeah. You're going to go look at the cousin. Just just saying. Yeah. I mean, dozens were arrested in this trial. Habeas corpus was still suspended, so yeah. they could basically go buck wild on the uh uh, on the arrests yeah. and anyone who had even remotely been associated with any of the conspirators in the last like couple of weeks was rounded up and put in prison until they could sort out the story and who had helped whom and and what exactly happened in the end eight people stood trial all of them were found guilty it took them seven weeks and 366 witnesses to go through all of the testimony they wow. were not messing around while all were found guilty four of them were sentenced to death uh, Powell, Atzerold, Harold, and uh, Mary Surratt, the wife of the of John Surratt, um, and the person who had been harboring all of these conspirators all of this time. There were a couple of people who gave Booth like a lot of help along the way. Who it's kind of controversial that they didn't get charged with anything, but yeah. you know that's how things like this go every once in a while. Uh, John Surratt had booked it uh, for Quebec, got from Quebec to uh, Europe. And was eventually uh, caught uh, about two years later in Egypt. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty crazy series of events. Yeah. But ultimately, the conspiracy had failed. Andrew Johnson became president because he was the VP in the line of presidential succession. Yeah. Uh, and Atzerold couldn't follow through. <laughs> That's maybe not the best way of putting that. But, you know, this is what a real conspiracy looks like. It's messy, it's loud, Mm -hmm. it's big, it doesn't work right, and it can be dangerous, but it very rarely goes exactly according to plan. Yeah. And I I thought it was a a really good one to include because I don't think a lot of people realize that it was part of not even just like a small conspiracy, but it was an offshoot of a very, very large conspiracy to try and make drastic changes to the makeup of the entire Western Hemisphere. Which is kind of crazy. The Knights, by the way, went by the wayside along with the Civil War. They had changed their name a couple of times uh, throughout the war to things that were a little bit less creepy sounding. Yeah. Incorporated a lot of words like liberty and things like that into it. You know. Buzzwords. The usual. Yeah. There were certain rumors that even after the war, there were members of the Knights of the Golden Circle who were working to, you know, kind of South Horrorize Again type stuff. Supposedly, Jesse James may have been a member. There were rumors that his bank robbing and whatnot was going towards funding uh, a newly revived Southern army. There's nothing really credible to back that up in any way, but it's an interesting story. Yeah. And yeah, that's kind of what we have to show for it. One assassination that just didn't happen. One that was botched real badly. Yeah. Like the worst that you can botch an assassination. Yeah. If you want to assassinate somebody and they're in bed because they're basically dead Shouldn't and you still mess it hard. up. Mm, that's just sad. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, President President Lincoln. So yeah, that's that's the story of the conspiracy to uh, to kill Lincoln. What do you think of that one? It's, it's very interesting. It, it has a lot more to it than I knew which I think is exactly what you were saying that a lot of people don't know because all you ever really hear is John Wilkes Booth theater mm-hmm. shot him in the back of the head. Mm-hmm. I did know about the peephole, but I think it's funny that he went in that morning to do it. Yeah. Like he's like laying in bed the night before, like, but... Uh, he's just, going over his list. 
just what if he's not in there when I run in? What am I going to say? How am I going to fit? He's like up all hours. 4.30, he gets it. He's like, a people. A people. <laughs> Runs down to the theater. It's infallible. Yeah. What could possibly go wrong? Um, yeah, it's... I, I, yeah, I, I think it, it's funny being this far away from that period of American history where you forget that like it's it's not as though there were just a bunch of people at the top who were all for like keeping slavery around it's like no this was a socially entrenched thing to the point that like people people fought bitterly and desperately for it and as much as there are people out there who want to talk about the civil war as though uh it wasn't about slavery and as much as it is true that there is more to it than that there were significant numbers of people who, if you went up to them and asked them why they were fighting, would tell you it was to preserve slavery. And in fact, they wanted to expand the institution yeah. uh, further into the world. Yeah. And the other thing I find really fascinating about this is that this is a conspiracy that we've, like, we found, like, we, we busted it. It's every conspiracy theorist's biggest dream. Yeah. We know what the conspiracy was. We know who was involved. We got them all. We know why. And as soon as that happens, like, no one cares about it anymore. Yeah. Like, it stops being interesting the way things like Roswell are interesting. That's not true for every single conspiracy. There's certain ones out there, like, say, MK Ultra, where it's still just fascinating for days. Yeah. But in a lot of situations where, it, like, when it gets proven, people just sort of drop it. And it comes yeah. back to what we were talking about with the Masons. Secrecy is really, really intriguing. Everyone loves yeah. a good secret. Everyone wants to know a good secret. Mm -hmm. A lot of the times when you learn the secret, it stops being interesting. Yeah, it's not that exciting. Or as interesting as having that secret. Yeah. And that's kind of why conspiracy theories are always going to stick around. Mm -hmm. There's nothing quite as juicy. Yeah. So that's the Lincoln assassination. And that was a that was a pretty solid spread of uh, of conspiracy theories again. Yeah. I uh, I think that went really well. That was a lot of fun to research and, and talk about today. Yeah, it was good. I, I learned some stuff today. Awesome. Well, yeah. always happy to have you on the show. It was uh, it's really nice having you here. Yeah. Putting stories like the Roswell incident into their historical context can make them seem a little less fun, but in many ways give us a better understanding of the time in which they developed the secrecy and futurism of the early atomic era, for example, or the mistrust of the government post-Watergate when all the first-hand accounts began coming out. Likewise, the conspiracy to kill Lincoln shows just how difficult a true conspiracy is to pull off properly. If a conspiracy theory makes too much sense, there's a good chance it's been tailored to elicit a conclusion rather than to actually tell the truth. Next time on HI101, we'll be talking about the imprisoning war. That episode will be up on April 1st. Since HI101's format can result in some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post for each show there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed on there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. It doesn't just have to be about corrections. I look forward to hearing from listeners for any reason and respond when I can. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, you should start looking for more information yourself.
no matter how much you enjoy the show, I promise you'll find even more good stuff out there. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI 101. Thank you.